It is September 27, 1955, and downtown Portland, Oregon is empty of people. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at ORHistory.com. We profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Today's episode is the first in our two-part serial on civil defense in Portland, Oregon. Today's podcast is brought to you by Andy and Bax. Resident historian, Doug Kank Crispin. Whether you're preparing for a Soviet hydrogen bomb attack, the zombie apocalypse, or a rafting trip on the Clackamas River, Andy and Bax should be your first and only supply stop. Andy and Bax is Portland's oldest and best surplus whitewater rafting and outdoor store since 1945, centrally located at 324 Southeast Grand Avenue. Visit the website at andyandbax.com, or better yet, drop on in. You'll always be prepared for anything at Andy and Bax. It was the height of the Cold War, and two ideologies centered on the United States and the Soviet Union were battling it out for the rest of the world. Like a Frankie Goes to Hollywood video, only slightly less homoerotic. Armed with potent nuclear weapons, as well as staggering conventional forces, no one wanted to have this war heat up with a flashpoint, but everyone was terrified of just that happening and driving the entire world into a smoldering and smoking black ball of extinction. In 1955, the United States possessed an arsenal of 2,280 nuclear weapons. With an arsenal of this size, the United States hoped to create a total loss of 118 out of 134 Soviet cities. Communist casualties consequential from this campaign were estimated to total 77 million, with 60 million dead in that staggering figure. The Soviet Union was nowhere near this level of atomic weapons but they were gaining ground quickly. In 1955, the CIA estimated that the Soviets possessed only 300 nuclear bombs, but things were ramping up. In that year alone, American authorities detected five atomic explosions in the Soviet Union as the commies were attempting to further develop their munitions store. treated the threat of the bomb and the resulting nuclear inferno pretty damn seriously. In a 1953 survey of 30 similar-sized cities by the American Municipal Association, P-Town had by far the highest civil defense budget. 
Much of this was due to the special levy passed by voters to fund this enterprise. But even that Portlanders thought such a measure was needed says something about the civic value transmuted to bomb shelters and tin saltines. Of course, weekly air raid alarm testing, each and every Monday at noon wailing across the city, helped to reinforce this commitment. Or indeed there was a threat. In 1953, the Civil Defense Administration, headquartered in Washington, D.C., announced that Portland had made the A-list, a tally of critical areas with the most probable targets for atomic attack. That's right, baby, the big time. Portland had been placed on the exclusive list of 70 cities that faced probable massive destruction, colossal firestorms, and the good old-fashioned radiation fallout that goes with it. The city's leadership took a Soviet attack very seriously and soon saw a glaring problem. It was determined that every business day, 150,000 people, mainly in cars, came to an area 1.8 miles in diameter in downtown Portland. Nighttime residents in this zone numbered 35,000, bringing the population concentration to 185,000 people. With missile technology extremely limited in that era, the thought in 1954 was that the most realistic threat was a single A-bomb dropped on Portland. The theorized munition was presumed to be roughly 20 times the strength of the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Without any warning, a daylight, business day sortie could result in the death of 75% of these people in downtown Portland. And unfortunately, prevailing consensus was that as little as a 15-minute warning of the bomber's approach was most likely. With the CIA estimating over 1,000 Tu-4s, the Soviet state-of-the-art bomber at the time, the Pacific Northwest was in range of the Soviet air bases on the northeast periphery of Siberia. In addition, the United States feared that the Soviets had developed a capable jet-powered bomber force that could devastate the entire nation. While it was later discovered to be a gross overestimation, at the time of our tale, it was perceived to be a very real threat. The civil defense plan for Portland that resulted from these assumptions was pretty straightforward. Get the fuck out. Fast. Have as many people as possible leave Portland in a prompt and prescribed fashion and save a bunch of lives in the process. Remember the killer rabbit of Kair Banach? That's right, run away. Jack Lowe, Portland's Director of Disaster Relief and Civil Defense, broke the carnage down into monstrous numbers that illustrated efficiency and cold-hearted calculations. If we have time to reduce the daytime population pattern of the downtown area to the same as normal nighttime, we will save 100,000 lives. But where would everyone go? To the burbs, baby! To the burbs! As civil defense guru Jack Lowe stated, all we have to do is get out. But the cities and counties surrounding us would have the burden of taking care of the whole population for an indefinite period. 
Sounds enticing to those who live outside Portland, huh? Resident historian Doug Kank Crisper. The magnitude of refugees from a successful evacuation would have been staggering, too. Reception areas, as they were called, but refugee camps seems more appropriate of a term. Scapoose was to take 15,000, 52,000 at Banks, 54,000 to Forest Grove, 17 would flee to Carlton, 33,000 at Newburgh, 44,000 at Brooks, 46,000 would relocate to Canby, 64 each at Estacada and Malala, and 50,000 were to go to Hood River. These city slicker, highfalutin refugees would then eventually be fanned out over the rural areas of Oregon in what a reporter termed, quote, in effect, a statewide return to the land movement, end quote. Refugees have to be fed, or at least the refugees hope so. In preparation of the fire and brimstone event, a dozen charming Portland women took a Red Cross and civil defense course on emergency mass feeding and tried their skills one June day. Some Boy Scouts built them an outdoor oven from rubble brick, clay, and straw. A galvanized garbage can was built into it for an oven, and the lid served as the oven door. Forty people from the CD training center were fed what was called an austerity meal and allowed their choice of pickled beets, tossed salad, bread and butter, scalloped potatoes with ham, a casserole of baked beans and wieners, chocolate pudding, milk, coffee, and lemonade. Surely appalling to you Portland foodies. Just think of it as an atomic age food cart. Pacific Northwest breweries were to help out during the post-nuclear hellscape as well. In an apparently resounding humanitarian move, these macro breweries were to stop structuring the suds and can water instead. Seven breweries in the area agreed to can water from their own water supplies and rush it to the mass care centers on brewery or other distributors' trucks. The industry offered that its local breweries could can or bottle a staggering 35,000 gallons of water an hour. In addition, the brewers agreed that soup or stew could be made in their giant mash kettles, 106,000 gallons of it. So, dear ass kicker, how about a lukewarm bottle of Henry Weinhard's whatever meat we could find during the nuclear apocalypse stew as you huddle around some burning pallets in the Malala Refugee Center, the silhouette of former Portland glowing in the background? I don't know about you, but in the post-apocalyptic Malala hellscape, I'd rather be drinking a beer instead. In 1955, Portland decided to put its civil defense plan to the test. In an audacious move, Civic officials decided to evacuate downtown Portland during a weekday's business hours in a drill they called Operation Greenlight. To preserve at least a modicum of surprise, the city's citizens would be given a three-day window in September in which the evacuation could happen. But beyond that, no one was to know the specific date or time. It was to be the nation's largest experiment 
in evacuating such a densely populated urban area, keeping Portland weird since 1955. The one-way grid street system that we see in downtown Portland to this day was viewed as a perfect pre-existing complement to emptying downtown Portland of people rather rapidly. Predetermined escape routes were planned by city engineers, and when the alarm sounded, all stoplights were switched to this pattern. Green lights led the path, and a motorist just had to join the traffic stream and follow the green lights to safety. Pedestrians were instructed to do the same, and select cars with empty seats picked up the walkers and conveyed them out as well. Barricades were to be set up outside the city asking incoming motorists to consider delaying their trip by a few hours. It all sounded either really, really easy, or something like a giant 200,000-person clusterfuck. A series ran daily in the Oregonian called The Bomb and You, leading up to the event. It was a FAQ of the time, and provides the modern reader with some entertaining reading. How will the people know when the test has been called? The signal will be sounded on the public warning sirens. First will come the familiar test signal, heard every Monday at 12.05. 30 seconds of wailing tone, followed by 30 seconds of steady tone. Then will come the evacuation signal. Three minutes of steady tone, followed again by the test signal. The test signal alone will indicate that the test is over. As an added visual signal, amber traffic lights will flash on and off continuously throughout the test. Suppose I have driven downtown to shop and I'm in a store when the test signal sounds. What should I do? You should leave at once, as the store will close. Go first to your car and drive out of the test area. Follow the green lights. Turn with the flow of traffic if you hit a red light. The green lights will lead you out of the congested area by the best route. If I have ridden a bus downtown, can I get home the same way during Operation Greenlight? Perhaps, but don't count on getting your regular bus at its regular stop. Portland Traction Company buses in the area, when the evacuation test signal sounds, will load to capacity before joining the outgoing traffic. They will then follow the green light, as do private motor vehicles to the most accessible point of exit. Exactly what does full cooperation involve for the average citizen? First, to participate. Also to participate intelligently by planning in advance how to meet the problems involved in your individual case. Civil Defense wants to know whether, under its overall planning to meet a real emergency, you will be able to save yourself and your family. It is the purpose of Operation Green Light to help make that determination. If you are not a part of the evacuation test, the test will not help the responsible officials to plan on your behalf. The green light plan was ripe for disaster. As Civil Defense Kingpin Jack Lowe said, It could very well be the biggest traffic jam Portland has ever seen. In fact, Portland Police Chief Jim Purcell Jr. had ordered his officers to arrest any driver or pedestrian who violated the test's rules. 
The Oregonian's editors raised the concern of a fire taking place in downtown when no one was there. Also, there was the fear of looting, with police too busy controlling 200,000 people evacuating. Herman Edwards, a staff writer for the Oregonian, penned an almost poetic piece when he wrote that the silent streets, soaking wet from a sullen day-long rain, darkened under a low-hanging curtain of sodden clouds, held the answer to the most perplexing question civil defense has faced. Resident historian Doug Kent Crispin sat down with current Portland mayor Sam Adams to get his thoughts on what was going through the minds of Portland officials the day before Operation Greenlight. This is Doug Kent Crispin, resident historian of Oregon history, and I'm sitting down with Portland's own kick-ass mayor, Mayor Sam Adams, who has graciously agreed to talk with us today about civil defense. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Mayor. It's my pleasure, and I think that I'll have that kick-ass, you know, part of the official title of the mayor of Portland from now on. Please feel free to bestow it. We give that to you Thank from you. Oregon history. I'm honored. Mayor, Operation Greenlight moving 200,000 people in 90,000 vehicles out of the city was ripe for confusion, complexity, and mishaps. Please give our listeners some mayoral insight. What thoughts might have been going through Portland Mayor Peterson's mind lying in bed the night before Operation Greenlight? I think he was probably having either great anxiety or a profound nightmare about gridlock and choke points and uh, intersections, you know, um, because, you know, if a car breaks down at a key exit point, um, then that car breaks down and, you know, gridlocks everyone behind them uh, if it can't be moved out of the way in a, in a timely manner. So I think he was concerned about that. I think he was concerned about uh, the how... Uh, how to manage that initial pulse of, of people seeking to exit. That initial pulse was more of a headlong rush. At 3.10 p.m. on Tuesday afternoon, the evacuation alarm sounded. The 1,000-block area within the central business core was completely evacuated in 34 minutes. That's right, 200,000 people in 90,000 automobiles in 34 minutes. Historian Doug Kent Crispin. A deluge of 1.19 inches of rain had fallen that day, but Portlanders have apparently always been used to that shit, for very few complications arose in the massive test. No one was injured, except for the one civil defense worker who collapsed and was declared dead on arrival at the hospital from an apparent heart attack. Fears of looting and bank vault hijinks proved to be superfluous apprehension, for an almost giddy police chief, James Purcell Jr., stated that the excellent cooperation of the public made it unnecessary for us to make even one arrest. 75,000 school-age students were evacuated. 
3,000 students from the then-named Portland State College evacuated. 600 people from Multnomah County Courthouse left the building in seven minutes, but that did not include the 42 prisoners who were left in their cells during the exercise. The Portland Public Library set the record. It was empty, and all of the lights were turned out in a swift three minutes. I was so proud I nearly busted my buttons, said Governor Paul Patterson. I wouldn't have missed it for a lot. I had a good deal of misgivings. I thought there might be some public refusal to cooperate. Now it's over. We can say to ourselves, we can do it. We possibly can be more cocksure about our civil defense and our civil defense plans. I'm happy we undertook it. Jack Lowe, Portland's Director of Disaster Relief and Civil Defense, the same man who had harbored so much anxiety before the event, must have felt vindicated in the results. He stated that, I feel the tests proved we very definitely have the capability for evacuating the entire city. We learned what we wanted to learn. We could load the same plan with double the number of people and vehicles without taking very much additional time to evacuate. Surely, farm owners in Newburgh let out a cheer. And I'm picturing 200,000 hipsters with peg leg jeans and big bushy mustaches on bicycles pedaling to Estacada. Do you, do you share that vision with me? <laughs> I think that, you know, one of the advantages actually that we have over, over 1955 Operation Greenlight is there are, we have a much better non-car system in the city. So we actually have more ways to evacuate successfully and safely than we had before. Better pedestrian uh, routes, uh, much better bicycling. Uh, options and that's to our advantage I mean that's to our safety advantage and if we need to get a part of the town cleared out because of our investments in bicycling we're gonna have, be able to do it more successfully operation green light received a national recognition and characterized Portland Oregon as the poster child for civil defense on a municipal scale a regional director of the Civil Defense Administration called the operation the most significant test held so far in the nation. And in a nationally televised film about Portland's commitment to civil defense two years later, the entire country was able to witness our methodical evacuation, in addition to our mayor's own doomsday bunker. Make sure to tune in for our next episode, when we tell you about such shenanigans, and you too can be witness to... Armageddon! Or something like that. No one likes us, I don't know why We may not be perfect, but heaven knows we try But all around, even our old friends put us down Let's drop the big one and see what happened Thank you for listening, Ass Kicker! And be on the lookout for future podcasts by our crew. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast on civil defense in Portland was brought to you by Andy and Bax. It was written by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh and featured the vocal talents of Becca Kank Crispin. Citations are available upon request. Check out our website at orhistory.com 
where you can subscribe to the podcast through RSS and have it delivered directly to your device. Or follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. And coming up on Tuesday, September 20th, 2011 at 7.30 p.m., resident historian Doug Kent Crispin will be at the Jack London Bar underneath the Rialto Pool Room at 529 Southwest 4th, talking about civil defense in Portland in the 1950s. He'll be showing the film A Day Called X, so be sure to be on time. Why don't you come down and join him? Just be sure to wear your lead-lined undies. Thanks again to our kick-ass mayor, Sam Adams, for his participation in this podcast and granting us a kick-ass interview. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass.